linguistic archives. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, here we are at the beginning of 2008. Can you believe it? Sometimes uh, it seems as if time stopped, uh, at least for me, way back on New Year's Day of 2000, after the uh, Y2K scare turned out to be a dud. You know, it's almost as if we're still waiting for a shoe to drop, as the saying goes. But uh, nothing earth-shattering happened on that long-anticipated day, and my guess is that the same will be true about the uh, winter solstice in 2012. But I'm getting way ahead of myself here. Uh, I'll have more to say about my personal beliefs about 2012 later in today's uh, podcast. But first, I want to send my gratitude and uh, give a big thank you to these uh, fellow saloners who made donations during the uh, past uh, four weeks to help with the expenses of these podcasts. And uh, these wonderful people are John P., Stephen B., David G., Dr. Laura, Adam L., and uh, a friend in the Haight-Ashbury. I thank you uh, one and all, uh, including our fellow saloners who have uh, been adding their thoughts to the uh, psychedelicsalon.org blog and uh, to our forum over on thegrowreport.com. Now, how to begin another new year in the salon? That's what I was wondering as my wife and I were driving up the West Coast visiting friends and family recently. Unfortunately, a change in the weather caused us to uh, return home without making it all the way up to the Seattle area, where we'd planned on bringing in the new year with some friends. So, uh, hey, you guys, I hope you had a great time. Uh, sorry we missed it, but uh, we were with you all in spirit. You know, it was kind of uh, strange during our long car ride to find myself spending so much time thinking about the salon and uh, what it is we seem to be doing here. And I'll try to get uh, back to that thought later in the program, but uh, first I want to get on with today's talk by Terrence McKenna. I realize that uh, we were in the middle of listening to one of the trilogues between Ralph Abraham, Rupert Sheldrake, and Terrence, but I wanted to begin the year with something more focused, uh, something that we maybe could use to help set our course for uh, what I think has the potential of being a year of great consequence. You know, lots of things will take place this year. Uh, Pluto is entering Capricorn for the first time in uh, about 240-some years. The U.S. elections are promising some kind of change in direction for the American empire. The tottering world economy and our global ecology are sure to bring a few surprises. And then we uh, are also in the closing years of the current Mayan calendar. The list goes on, and uh, if you're paying close attention, you uh, already know these things and uh, can almost feel the impending, uh, what shall we call it, uh, the crunch, the shift, uh, or just change. (laughs) In the U.S., that's the uh, buzzword for all the politicians right now, change. But uh, they'd better be careful of what they're asking for, because uh, they might really get it this time. You know, it seems to me that a radical change is what our species requires if it's uh, going to survive this millennium. But uh, the only people who are going to have a difficult time this year, at least the way I choose to believe, are those who are going to uh, try to hold the hold what they got, hold the status quo, or even go backwards. Uh, 
Well, I've got news for them. Uh, the status quo uh, isn't sustainable. At least it isn't sustainable for the human species. So uh, maybe we better begin to make some radical changes in the way we're living on this planet. And uh, we'd better begin making those changes now. Of course, uh, the only person I actually have uh, even the slightest degree of control over is myself. And uh, so I thought I'd better listen to something inspirational to get myself geared up for a year of change. And uh, for me, that means another dose of Terrence McKenna. Now, you might wonder why I picked this particular talk to play today, because at first you might think he's only talking to visual artists. But for me, this talk has a message that is uh, worth taking to heart, no matter what your chosen path in this life is, because uh, I find that each and every person's life is actually a work of art. I still remember the first time that thought came to me. Uh, it was when I was in grammar school, and we uh, learned that an artist named Van Gogh uh, had cut his ear off. Now, uh, to be honest, I wasn't all that interested in his painting, uh, at least back then I wasn't, but the fact that he cut his own ear off is what uh, really got me interested in art for the first time. Immediately, I went to the encyclopedia to read more about him, and in the process, the story of his life and his paintings kind of became jumbled together in my mind. You know, I saw his paintings and his life of suffering uh, as a single work of art. And uh, it was then that I decided uh, to forego a normal career and instead try my hand at a whole range of experiences. At uh, least that's how I like to rationalize my life now, that a normal career is no longer a possibility. So uh, perhaps I am just rationalizing, but uh, it certainly is more enjoyable to think of my life as a work of art rather than as a long series of false starts <laughs> while I was uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. Fortunately, uh, I never grew up. But enough about me. Now it's about you. And the talk I'm going to play for you right now was given by Terrence McKenna in Port Wyneme, California, and was sponsored by the Carnegie Museum of Art in Oxnard. And uh, it was given sometime in uh, the early 1990s, uh, no later than 1992 is my guess. And he titled this talk, Opening the Doors of Creativity. As we listen to this talk right now, uh, try to keep in mind what I said about your life being your ultimate work of art. Try to think of yourself as the artist he talks of, and, and think of this year as a canvas that already has the background faintly traced in, waiting for events to unfold before uh, coming fully into focus. But against this background is where you'll be painting your life this year. And uh, so now, let's open our doors of creativity and uh, see what new thoughts Terrence McKenna might have for us today. Well, the theme that unites these lectures is uh, creativity and the techniques by which the artist can uh, refine his or her vision, expand the vision, communicate the vision. And um, before I get into that issue, I thought I would talk just a little bit about my notion of creativity per se. What is it uh, uh, in and of itself? 
And when I think like that, of course, I cast my mind back to nature. Nature is the great visible engine of creativity against which all other creative efforts uh, are measured. And creativity in nature has a curious uh, distribution. It's something which accumulates through time. If we stand back and look at the universe, we see that at its earliest moments, it was very simple. It was a plenum. It was without characters or characteristics. It was what in Hindu mythology is called the Turaya, which is described as attributeless. And naturally, if something is without attribution, you can't say much about it. It takes a while for it to undergo a declension into more creative realms. And these creative realms are distinguished as domains of difference. The precondition for creativity is, I think, disequilibrium, what mathematicians now call chaos. And through the life of the universe, as temperatures have fallen, more and more complex compound structures have arisen. And though there's been, um, you know, many a uh, slipping back in this process, over very large spans of time, we can say that creativity is conserved, that the universe becomes more creative, and out of that state of creative fecundity, more creativity is manifest. So that from that point of view, the universe is almost what we would have to call an art-making machine, an engine for the production of ever more novel forms of connectedness ever more exotic juxtapositions of disparate elements. And out of this, uh, I believe, arises implicitly a set of principles that we can then apply to uh, the human artist in the human world. N nature's creativity is obviously the wellspring of human creativity. We emerge out of nature, almost, and this idea I think was fairly present close to the surface of the medieval mind, we emerge out of nature almost as its finest work of art. Uh, the, the medieval mind spoke of the productions of nature. This is a phrase you hear as late as the 18th century, the productions of nature. and. Human creativity uh, emerges out of that, whether you have a model of the Aristotelian um, great ladder of being or a more modern evolutionary view where we actually uh, consolidate emergent properties and somehow bring them to a focus of self-reflection. Now, I'm sure that we couldn't carry out a discussion of this sort without observing that the prototypic figure for the artist 
as well as for the scientist is the shaman. The shaman is the figure at the beginning of human history that unites the doctor, the scientist, and the artist into a single notion of caregiving and creativity. And I think that, you know, to whatever degree art over the past several centuries has wandered in the desert, it is because this shamanic function has been either suppressed or forgotten. And we've, uh, different images of the artist have been held up at different times. Uh, the artist as uh, artisan, the artist as uh, handmaiden of a ruling class or family, the artist as designer for the production of integrated objects into a civilization. Uh, this notion of the artist as mystical journeyer, as one who goes into a world unseen by others and then returns to tell them of it, was pretty much lost in the post-medieval uh, and Renaissance conception of art up until the late 19th century or early 20th century, where, beginning with the Romantics, there is a new permission to explore the irrational. This really is the bridge back to the archaic shamanic function of the artist, permission to explore the irrational. The Romantics did it with their um, uh, elevation of titanic emotion, romantic love specifically. The symbolists in the mid-19th century did it by a uh, re-emphasis on the emotional content of the image and a rejection of the previous rationalism. And that emphasis on the image and on the emotions set the stage then for what I take to be the, the truly shamanic movements in art, which begin really with Alfred Jarry in the late 1880s and early 1890s. Jarry, you may remember, was the founder of something called the École du Pataphysique, the Pataphysical College. Jarry announced Pataphysics is the science. The problem was nobody could understand what it meant or what it stood for, including Jarry. <laughs> Jarry's uh, was tight. Jarry was tight with Lantremont, who you may recall said, I am fascinated with that kind of beauty that arises when a sewing machine meets a bicycle on an operating table. <laughs> See, this was a true effort to bend the boundaries of art, to create new permission, permission really for the unthinkable. And this, uh, again, reinforces the shamanic function. What do we mean when we say the unthinkable? We mean the envelope of that which can be conceived 
And for uh, at least 200 years, the ostensible mission of the artist has been to test the conceptual and imagistic envelope of what the society is willing to tolerate. And this has taken many forms. The uh, deconstruction of imagery that we get with abstract expressionism, going back into impressionism and the pointillists, or uh, the permission for the irrational imagery of the unconscious, surrealism and, uh, and German expressionism make use of this permission. Always the idea being to somehow destroy the idols of the tribe, dissolve the conceptual boundary of ordinary expectation. Well, in order to do this, it seems to me uh, there is a precondition for the creation of art, which I call understanding. And I don't mean this uh, in an intellectual sense. I mean it in the sense that Alfred North Whitehead intended when he defined understanding as the apperception of pattern as such. As such. There's nothing more to it than that. You see, if we were to look at this room and we were to squint our eyes, and uh, I'm doing this right now, and I see that the room divides itself into people dressed in red and people dressed in blue. This is a pattern, and it tells me something about what I'm looking at. Now I shift my depth of field. Now I'm looking at where men are sitting and where women are sitting. This is a different pattern, and it tells me more about what I am looking at. The number of these patterns theoretically present in any construction is infinite. That says to me then that the depth of understanding cannot be known. It cannot be known. Everything is imminent. William Blake makes this point, you know, that you can see infinity in a grain of sand. So understanding then is the, pre, the precondition for creativity. And this understanding is not so much intellectual as it is visual, visual. And in thinking about this, I realized what an influence upon my own ideas in this area uh, Aldous Huxley was, not the Huxley that we might ordinarily associate uh, with my concerns, the Huxley of the doors of perception and heaven and hell, but the Huxley of a very modest book that he wrote in the early 50s called The Art of Seeing. The Art of Seeing. And in that book, he makes the point that a good art education begins with a good drawing hand. That to be able to coordinate the hand and eye and to see into nature, to see into the patterns present as such, is the precondition for a kind of approach 
to the absolute. Now out of this process of seeing, which I'm calling understanding, the creative process ushers in novelty. And many of you have heard me speak of novelty in another context, in the context of nature as a novelty-producing engine of some sort, and ourselves almost as the, hand, <clears throat> the handiwork of nature. But this same handiwork of nature, which we represent, we also internalize and re-express through the novelty of the human world. Well now, if we take seriously the, the shamanic model as a basis for authentic art, then certainly in the modern context, what we see missing from the repertoire of the artist are shamanic techniques. And it's for the discussion of these shamanic techniques, I believe, um, that I was brought here this evening. So I want you to cast your mind back to a great seminal moment, germinal moment in the history of human thought, which was about 25,000 years ago, the great glaciers that had covered most of the Eurasian landmass began to melt. And human populations that had been islanded from each other for about uh, 15 millennia began to recontact each other and reconnect. And out of this comes what is called the Magdalenian Revolution from 18,000 to 22,000 years ago. And what it is, is nothing less than a tremendous explosion of creativity and aesthetic self-expression on the part of the human species. We find uh, the, for the first time, bone and antler technology takes its place along with stone technology. Musical instruments appear over a wide area. And cave paintings, some paintings in areas and recesses so remote from the surface of the ground that it takes several hours to reach them, are painted and uh, set up in dramatic tableaus specifically designed to bring together sound, light, and dance in hierophanies, extravaganzas of aesthetic output that uh, invoke a kind of transcendent other, that human beings for the first time are trying to come to grips with and make some kind of cultural statement about. And this pulling into matter of the ideas of human beings, first, you know, in the forms of uh, 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 beadwork and chipped stone and carved bone, within 20,000 years, 
ushers in to the kinds of high civilizations that we see around us and points us toward the kind of extraplanetary mega-civilization that we can feel operating on our own present like a kind of great attractor. Now, this whole intellectual adventure in exteriorization of ideas is entirely an aesthetic adventure. Until very uh, recently, utility is only a secondary consideration. The real notion is a kind of seizure by the tremendum, by the other, which then forces us to take up matter, clay, bone, flint, and put it through a mental process where we then excrete it as objects that have lodged within them ideas. This seems to be the special, unique, transcendental function of the human animal, is the production and condensation of ideas. And what made it possible for the human animal is language. If you're seeking the thumbprint of the transcendental on the, on the uh, myriad phenomena that compose life on this planet, to my mind, the place to look is human language. Human language represents an ontological break of major magnitude with anything else going on on this planet. I mean, yes, bees dance and dolphins squeak and chimpanzees do what they do, but it's a hell of a step from there to uh, Wallace Stevens, let alone William Shakespeare. Uh, language is the unique province of human beings, and language is the unique tool of the artist. The artist is the person of language. And I've you know, given a lot of thought to this because um, the work that I've done with psilocybin mushrooms and the observations of psychedelic plant use in the Amazon centered around ayahuasca lead me to the conclusion that it is the synergy and catalysis of language that lies behind not only the emergence of human consciousness out of animal organization, but then its ability to set a course for a transcendental dimension and pursue that course against all the vicissitudes of biology and history over 10 or 15,000 years. Language has made us more than a group of pack-hunting monkeys. It's made us a group of pack-hunting monkeys with a dream. <laughs> <laughs> and the fallout from that dream has given us our glory and our shame, our weaponry, our technology, our art, our hopes, our fears, all of this arises out of our own ability to articulate and to communicate 
with each other. And I use this in the broadest sense. I mean, for me, the glory of the human animal is cognitive activity, song, dance, sculpture, poetry, uh, all of these cognitive activities, when we participate in them, we cross out of the domain of animal organization and into the domain of a genuine relationship to the transcendent. As you know, shamans in all times and places uh, gain their power through relationships with helping spirits, which they sometimes call ancestors, sometimes call nature spirits, but somehow the acquisition of a relationship to a disincarnate intelligence is the precondition for authentic shamanism. Now, nowhere in our world do we have an institution like that that we do not consider pathological except in the now very thinly spread tradition of the muse that artists alone among human beings are given permission to talk in terms of my inspiration or a voice which told me to do this or uh, a vision that must be realized the the thin the thin line the thin thread of shamanic descent into our profane world leads through the office of the artist. And so if society is to somehow take hold of itself at this penultimate moment as we literally waver on the brink of planetary extinction, then the artist, like Ariadne following her thread out of the labyrinth is going to have to follow this shamanic thread back through time. And you know, one of the most disempowering things that has been done to us by the male dominant culture is to um, brush out our footprints into the past. We don't have a clue as to how we got here. Most people can't think further back than the first Nixon administration, <laughs> let alone, you know, uh, the arrival of the Vikings, the fall of Chataljuyuk, the melting of the glaciers, so forth and so on. We have been disempowered by a rational tendency to deny our irrational roots, which are a kind of embarrassment to science because science is uh, the special province of the ego and magic and art are the special province of something else. I could name it, but I won't. It prefers to be unnamed, I think. So how seriously then are we to take this, um, I'll call it an obligation, to follow the shamanic thread back into time. Well, I, I think that it is uh, a matter of saving our own souls. 
that this is the real challenge. You know, I love to dig at the yogins by saying nobody ever went into an ashram with their knees knocking in fear over the tremendous dimension they know they were about to enter through meditation. Still truer and more sad, still more true and more sad, is the notion that very few of us pick up our sculpting tools or our airbrush with our knees knocking with fear because we know we are invoking and acting with the muse at our elbow. And somehow I think the artists need to recover this sense of uh, mystery. One of the most depressing things to me about the art scene, and I had a chance to reconnect with this because I was just in New York, is uh, it now has a kind of directionless quality. You can go into a gallery and you cannot tell whether it is 1990, 1980, 1970, or 1960 because a kind of eschatological malaise has settled over art. All notion of any forward movement toward a transcendental ideal has been put aside for um, the exploration of idiosyncratic vision. And I grant you, this is a, 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 a tension, and perhaps in the question period we can talk about this. There is a tension between the individual vision and uh, the notion of an attractor or, or a, a collective vision which wants to be expressed. But to my mind, this is the same dichotomous tension that haunts the individual in his or her relationship to Tao. You know, we don't want to be lost in ego, but on the other hand, if we completely express the Tao, we have no sense of self. The ideal seems to be a kind of coincidentia positorum, a kind of literalizing of a paradox where what we have is Tao, but we perceive it as ego. And in the application of this notion to the art problem, I would say what we need is a situation where schooling, if you want to put it that way, or a tendency toward a coherent vision expressed by many artists is spontaneous. Each artist imagines that they are pursuing their own vision, yet obviously they are in the grip of an archetype which is rising through the medium of the unconscious. Now the last time we saw this in American art was in abstract expressionism which was probably in terms of the values, in terms of tension and uh, the amount of uh, emotional gain between one artistic moment and another, the break between abstract expressionism and what preceded it was the most radical break in American art in this century. Abstract expressionism actually carried us in to a confrontation with what the quantum physicists were telling us. 
that the universe is field upon field of integrated vibration, that there is no top level, there is no bottom level, that the ordinary structures of provisional space-time are simply that, that if we can rise out of the human dimension, then we discover these larger, more integrated dimensions where mind and nature somehow interpenetrate each other. A vision like that, a coherent vision, has yet to announce itself here in the uh, post-history, pre-apocalypse phase of things. Well, I guess I have a a kind of reactionary side uh, when I think about the creative endeavor. I believe that um, the psychedelic experience as encountered by each of you in the privacy of your own mind or as encountered by a uh, pre-literate society somewhere in the world that that psychedelic experience is in a way the Rosetta Stone not only for um, understanding the encryption that our own lives represent each to ourselves, but it's also a Rosetta Stone for uncoding the historical experience. Art is this endeavor to leave the animal domain behind, to create another dimension, orthogonal, to the concerns of uh, ordinary history. And this orthogonal domain, to my mind, is glimpsed most clearly in the psychedelic experience. The psychedelic experience shows you more art in an hour and a half than the human species has produced in 15 or 20,000 years. Now, this is an incredible claim. This is why I make it. Uh, the, the energy barrier which separates us from this tremendous repository of transcendental imagery is very low. You know, it's a matter of a little personal commitment and uh, the substances which make the transition possible. The perturbation of brain chemistry is easily done. What is not so easily done is the assimilation of the consequences of this act. Uh, Ordinarily, we assume that consciousness is channeled between tremendously deep walls that there is no way to um, force uh, a confrontation with the other or the transcendent or the unconscious. We tend to assume that you know we're going to have to do double duty at the ashram for three decades before you're vouchsafed even a glimpse into these places. Uh, this is not true. Culture and this is my message to artists and to anybody else who cares to notice, culture is a plot 
against the expansion of consciousness. And this plot prosecutes its, uh, its goals through a uh, limiting of language. Language is the battleground over which the, the fight will take place because what we cannot what we cannot say we cannot communicate and by say I mean dance paint sing meme what we cannot say we cannot communicate we can conceive of things that we cannot communicate but and I think every one of us here has done that. And that's a thrilling thing. That is uh, the deep homework. The, the psychedelic inner astronaut sees things which no human being has ever seen before. And no human being will ever see again. But in fact, this has no meaning unless it is possible to carry it back into the collectivity. And what motivates me to talk to groups like this is the belief that we do not have centuries of gently unfolding time ahead of us in which to uh, uh, you know, gently tease apart the threads of the human endeavor and create a bright new world. Uh, that's not our circumstance. Uh, this is a fire in a madhouse. <laughs> and uh, to get a hold on the situation, I think we are going to have to force the issue. Well, uh, one, one way of forcing the issue or a, a chemical definition of forcing the issue when you're talking about a chemical reaction is catalysis. We want to catalyze consciousness. We want to move it faster toward its goals, whatever those goals are. Well, I believe that to the present moment, language, again in the broadest sense, speech, dance, musical composition, language has just been allowed to grow like topsy. It's uh, been a kind of uh, every man for himself situation. Now, what we really need as we see ourselves moving from one species among tens of thousands of species on this planet, over the past 10,000 years, we have redefined ourselves. And now, like it or not, we are the custodians of the destiny of this planet. Our decisions affect every life form on the planet. And yet, we are still communicating with each other with the extremely precise medium of small mouth noises mediated by ignorance and hate. <laughs> this doesn't seem like the way to do business <laughs> as we approach the third millennium. So, it, it, what I... Uh, what I'm hopeful for and what I actually see happening, I mean, I think that we're on the right track. The birth of a new kind of 
humanity is going to take place but there are still a lot of decisions to be made how violent shall this birth be what toll shall it take upon our mother the earth what shape shall the baby be in when it finally is delivered these are the decisions that artists can mediate and control most people are afraid of the unconscious this is why uh, you know you can have a, a psychedelic compound like DMT which is very much like ordinary brain chemistry uh, appears completely physiologically harmless uh, only lasts 10 minutes extremely powerful and generally in this society you have no takers this is because there has been a failure of moral courage and the failure of moral courage is uh, perhaps most evident in our own community the community of uh, of the artists in a way uh, it's the poets that have failed us because they have not uh, provided a song or sung a vision that we could all move in concert to so now we are in the absurd position of being able to do anything and what we are doing is fouling our own nest and pushing ourselves toward planetary toxification and extinction this is because the poets the artists have not articulated an, a, um, a moral vision the moral vision must come from the unconscious it doesn't have to do I believe with uh, you know these um, post meaning movements in art deconstructionism and this sort of thing that art's task is to save the soul of mankind and that anything less is a dithering while Rome burns because if the artists who are self-selected for uh, being able to journey into the other if the artist cannot find the way then the way cannot be found ideology is extremely alien to art political ideology I mean and if you will but notice it is political ideology that has been calling the shots for the last seven or eight hundred years we can transcend politics if we can put some other program in place you cannot transcend politics into a void and I believe that a world without ideology could be created if what were put in place of ideology were the notion of the realization of the good the true and the beautiful you know the three-tiered canon of the platonic aesthetic the reconnect the notion of the good the true and the beautiful then use psychedelics to empower the artists to go into this vast dimension that surrounds human history 
on all sides to an infinite depth and return from that world with the transcendental images that can lift us to a new cultural level. The muse is there. The, the dull maps that rationalism has given us are nothing more than whistling past the graveyard by the bad little boys of science. You only have to avail yourselves of these shamanic tools to rediscover a nature which is not mute, as Sartre said, in a kind of culmination of the modern viewpoint. Nature is not mute. It is man who is deaf. And the way to open our ears, open our eyes, and reconnect with the intent of a living world is through the psychedelics. Now, as you know, biology runs on genes, and genes are the units of meaning of heredity. But we could make a model of the informational environment that is represented by culture, and in fact this is done. A word has been invented, meme, M-E-M-E, meme. A meme is not the smallest unit of heredity. A meme is the smallest unit of meaning of an idea. Ideas are made of memes. And I think the art community might uh, function with more efficiency in the production of visionary aesthetic breakthroughs if we would think of ourselves as an environment modeled after the natural environment where we as artists are attempting to create means which enter an environment of other means that are in competition with each other and out of this competition of means ever more appropriate, adapted, and uh, suitable ideas can gather and uh, link themselves together into higher and higher organisms. Now, in order for this to happen, there is an obligation upon each one of us to carry our ideas clearly, because in the same way that a gene must be copied correctly to be replicated, or it will cause some pathological mutation, a meme must be correctly replicated or it will cause a pathological mutation. For instance, I would say what the Nazis did to Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy was a bad cop, a miscopied meme became a toxic mutation inside a culture. So uh, I would suggest to the people in this room tonight that you take a good look around at who's here. Artistic people, psychedelic people look pretty much like everybody else out in society. But we have come here tonight self-selected for our interest in the empowering capacity of psychedelic plants and the empowering capacity of art. So we represent an affinity group a population 
with the potential for uh, uh, mutagenic impact on the ideological structures of the rest of society. So look around. Someone here has what you need. And if you can only figure out who it is, you can make a novel connection to move then into a new level of creativity. Well, what is this new level of uh, creativity? Some of you may be familiar with a theme that was very big in medieval religious art, which was uh, the apocalypse uh, of St. John or of somebody. There are a number of of these apocalypses. And I think that... uh, many of us may come out of a kind of secular background or have not given this kind of a religious idea too much consideration. But my uh, idiosyncratic conclusion based simply on trying to be honest about the content of the psychedelic experience is that uh, human history really is on a collision course with a um, transcendental object of some sort. Uh, It is not going to be business as usual into the endless unfolding confines of the future. Uh, The very fact that human history is occurring on this planet, the very fact that a primate has left the ordinary pattern of primate activity and gone into the business of running stock markets and uh, molecular biology labs and art museums indicates to me the nearby presence in another dimension of a kind of hyper-organizing force or what I call the transcendental object. And I believe that this transcendental object is casting an enormous shadow over the human historical landscape. So that if you're back in um, ancient Judea, you have an anticipation of the Messiah. If you are at Eleusis, at the height of the practice of the Eleusinian mysteries, you have an anticipation of uh, the dark God. These anticipations of an unspeakable transcendent reality that are always clothed in the, um, in the assumptions of the individual artist and the society in which he or she is working are in fact genuine and that you don't have to give your o- yourself over to fundamentalist religion to connect with the fact that human history is an adventure. And this adventure has a number of startling reverses and sudden plot shifts that are very difficult to anticipate and that we are coming up on one of those. The civilization that was created out of the collapse of the medieval world has now shown its contradictions to be unbearable. And though no one of us 
knows what the shape of the new civilization will be, somehow in the singing of the ayahuasca songs in the rainforest, in the tremendous hypermetallic transcendental off-planetary flash of psilocybin, in the uh, teaching of the self-transforming machine elves that seem to dwell in the DMT dimension, we see that the ordinary linear expectations of history are breaking down and that uh, the, the truth of the eminence of the mystery is breaking through all the structures of denial of uh, the male dominator paradigm that has been in place so long. The way to make this birth process smooth, the way to bring it to a conclusion that will not betray the thousands and thousands of generations of people who who suffered birth and disease and migration and starvation and lonely death so that we could sit here this evening, the redeeming of the human enterprise all lies then in helping this thing come to birth. And each artist is an antenna to the transcendental other. And as we go with our own history, into that thing and then create a unique confluence of our uniqueness and its uniqueness, we collectively create an arrow, an arrow out of history, out of time, perhaps even out of matter that will redeem then the idea uh, that man is good redeem the idea that man is good. This is the promise of art and its fulfillment is never more near than the present moment. Thank you very much. I think we'll take a, I'm happy to take questions. Here. What do you mean by the second awareness? Say a little more about it. Of being aware that that other realm is something that's also very personal and... Well, yes, I mean, it seems it's, it's a landscape that begins within the self and seems to extend into the world. I mean, one of the very puzzling things about the psychedelic experience is that it argues that we are not atomic individuals uh, running around in some kind of society, but that if you actually drain the, the psychic water away, you'll discover that we're all connected at the roots. That, the, that it isn't a journey to another world, it's a journey inward to a world that is already present and there. The, the astonishing thing is how alienated we are from our own interior, 
from the interior world to the point where we can hardly recognize it. I mean, the, uh, I've talked a lot about the alien nature of the psychedelic experience and how it seems to be mappable over something as radical as the UFO experience. This is because we truly do not know who we are. The past 10,000 years have been so disempowering to us. We are really like the children of a dysfunctional relationship. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. In case you thought you recognized that voice just now, you probably did. Because that was the lovely Black Beauty, who is the host of BB's Bungalow, which you can catch over on the Cannabis Podcast Network at dopefiend.co.uk, along with a, a whole range of other interesting podcasts. Well, where to begin after a heavy dose of the Bard McKenna, huh? In the uh, comments section of one of my blogs the other day, fellow saloner Dr. Laura posted several questions, and uh, one of them was, is there another someone who has even a part of TM's bardic and intellectual capacity to hear now? Well, I'm sure there probably are several people like that walking around with us right now, but uh, so far I haven't been able to find any of them. And uh, what to me seems so unique about Terence McKenna was the fact that he combined several sometimes contradictory roles. Uh, you know, he was a mystic, a philosopher, a poet, an intellectual, and uh, at times a crank and uh, often cranky, I'm told. So uh, combine all of that with the bardic role he fell into and uh, you have a hard combination to come up with again. But, uh, at least for me, uh, the one thing that set Terence apart from the equally great minds of some of his contemporaries is his ability to uh, not take himself too seriously and uh, admit to the fact that uh, we are all uh, still just groping around in the dark for a few solid answers about existence. And uh, unlike some other eggheads I've met, uh, Terence was always able to laugh at himself. But uh, nonetheless, he truly did have a remarkable mind. Uh, just think about a few of the things he said in this talk we just listened to. Uh, you know, ideas like, the precondition for creativity is, I think, disequilibrium. What mathematicians now call chaos. Well, uh, Terence, if disequilibrium is uh, conductive to creativity, it looks as if we're uh, about to enter a highly creative year. And, uh, and do his words about the shamanic function of the artist, uh, the artist of life, hold any interest for you? Remember what he said? This is really the bridge back to the archaic shamanic function of the artist. Permission to explore the irrational. Hey, uh, these seem to be pretty irrational times to me. Uh, maybe we should go exploring. For example, uh, here's an idea that one of our fellow saloners, uh, Zach Crow, is exploring and uh, has asked for some help with. I'll read you uh, part of an email he sent me last month. I was wondering if you could point me in the right direction with something. In the uh, Syntax of Psychedelic Time podcast, Terence mentions making projections of the time wave of individuals to show the rise and fall of novelty. He says you cannot determine the nature of the change, but only observe times of extreme novelty or habit. 
However, he used the I Ching as a base, which uh, is a category for the elements that make up the substance of time. Is there ever any mention by him of taking specific points on the time wave and generating an I Ching hexagram for that time? If you know where I could find more information about his graphing for specific people and or ever heard mention of his deriving a hexagram from points on the wave, I would be grateful to you for sharing this information. Well, uh, Zach, I, I don't have a clue about this myself, but if any of our fellow saloners know something about that, well, uh, please post it on the psychedelicsalon.org blog and uh, hopefully we'll get some discussion going. Also, uh, Murr and uh, several others asked about the raw source file for the McKenna excerpt I used in Podcast 120. And, uh, yes, somewhere I've got that raw file, but uh, for the life of me, I can't remember which talk it came from. Uh, but like the talk I just played today, it was on a, a disc full of McKenna talks that uh, Erock X1 sent me. And, uh, hey, thanks again, Erock X1. I appreciate everything you've done for us here in the salon. So uh, somewhere you can find that whole talk online, and uh, hopefully I'll find it again uh, and podcast it yet this year. Now, before I forget it, uh, another of Dr. Laura's questions was, any advice on the order to listen to Terrence McKenna from sources not on your podcast? Well, uh, just now I googled Terrence McKenna in quotes, uh, followed by MP3, and came up with 25,000 hits. So... uh, I see what you mean. It's uh, really kind of overwhelming. But uh, fortunately, Terrence was almost uh, always in good form and interesting, so uh, you probably can't go wrong just following your instincts and uh, click away until he says something that holds your attention. I don't mean to trivialize this, but uh, my hunch is that every one of us would come up with a different list of where to begin to listen to Terrence. But if anyone does have some ideas that they would like to share about this, why don't you uh, begin a topic about it on the psychedelicsalon.org blog or on our forum at thegrowreport.com, and uh, I'll add my two cents there. Actually, uh, I'm really behind in reading these forums right now, but uh, I hope to catch up in the next few weeks as I get back into the old podcasting groove again. Since it's uh, been so long since my last podcast, I'm afraid that I've let a whole bunch of thank yous slip by without proper mention. Uh, for example, I, uh, I received several really cool gifts from fellow saloners that I truly appreciate, even though I haven't gotten a thank you out to you yet, like the uh, music from uh, Tor, uh, DJ, Martin, and several others who, uh, whose names, I'm sorry to say, escape me at the moment. And I also received several uh, wonderful pieces of art, including a a print of uh, Syrians reflecting the vocal cords of Gaia, all of which uh, I really appreciate. And that music and and art kind of got me to thinking about how I miss being able to listen to the music and see the art that our fellow saloners have posted to MySpace. Before we got kicked out of that site, uh, I found it interesting to uh, click through to the pages of some of our fellow saloners uh, who posted their art and music on that site and uh, and see and hear your creations. Now, this is just an offhand idea, but uh, if somebody wanted to volunteer to manage the site, I'd be uh, happy to set aside some server space and bandwidth to uh, host art and music created by our fellow saloners. Maybe it would uh, just be links to other sites where your artwork is already online, uh, sort of like a MySpace page or something. 
But it'd be nice to be able to just focus on the art and music of uh, friends of ours from the salon. You know, this may not be of any interest to you, but uh, if you'd like to organize and run a little project like that, uh, just send your ideas to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. Or uh, maybe we can work something like that into the PsychedelicSalon.org blog. Better yet, uh, if this idea interests you, uh, why not start a topic on our blog uh, or our forum at thegrillreport.com and get some discussion going if there's uh, any interest in collecting something like this into one place. But mainly, I I want to thank all of you that uh, sent a gift or a note or a kind thought or two. I really appreciate all of your love and support, and most of all, I appreciate you uh, stopping by the salon to uh, join us for a little mind candy from time to time. And getting back to the mind candy for a moment, there is one one more question that Dr. Laura posed that uh, I think needs answering, and not just by me, but uh, by you as well. The question is, where are you on the 2012 fence? Well, that's an excellent question, don't you think? Now that uh, we're only a few years away from the winter solstice of 2012, where do you stand? Do you think that uh, there will be an event of cosmic proportions take place? Or uh, do you think it's just going to be another day? You know, for uh, two different views about that uh, that day, you can listen to podcasts 56 and 57, where Daniel Pinchbeck and I took uh, opposite sides in that debate. I'll spare you the details, but uh, basically Daniel, and, and a significant number of my other friends, I might add, hold the belief that uh, some sort of cosmic event will take place at that time. For my own part, I'm sorry to report that I'm much more pedestrian in my beliefs. But my hopes are a completely different thing. My hope is that on the morning after the winter solstice of 2012, Daniel will come knocking at my door, all dressed in his finest feathers and light, and will say, See, I told you so. I really do hope that uh, Daniel and all of my other friends will stop by to say that. But uh, what I choose to believe is that uh, it'll be a thousand years from now before historians look back and say, You know, the generations that lived on either side of 2012 really did bring about a a major change in the way we humans live on this little planet. You know, just like uh, now we can look back on the year 1500 and say that about the women and men who were alive at that moment in time. So I'm looking at 2012 as the beginning of the next phase of my life. No matter what everybody else on this planet does, I'm going to do my best uh, by then to be as far off the energy grid as possible and to be eating only food grown close to where I live. Now, that may not seem like uh, very much in the grand scheme of things, but at least it's something I can achieve, uh, even with limited resources. For you, there may be other things you can do during the next four years so that come the winter solstice of 2012, You can also say that you're living in a new and better world than the one you now find yourself in. I don't know what those things are, but uh, I'll bet you can figure them out if you spend a little time thinking about it. True, the world could uh, magically change for the better overnight. But uh, what you can count on is that your world can magically change for the better simply by changing your attitude about your life. You know, if you see your life as a work of art, well, make sure it doesn't have too much gloom in it. Maybe you should add some lighter colors here and there. 
you uh, you certainly have an interesting backdrop to work with this year, and uh, some challenging energy is also heading your way. You know, I can hardly wait to see what you do with it. In fact, uh, to reinforce the new commitment that uh, you may have to become a shaman artist and to live this year as if it were a work of art, I'm going to uh, close this podcast a little differently and replay a brief comment that Terence just made about finding your muse. As you know, shamans in all times and places uh, gain their power through relationships with helping spirits, which they sometimes call ancestors, sometimes call nature spirits, but somehow the acquisition of a relationship to a disincarnate intelligence is the precondition for authentic shamanism. Now, nowhere in our world do we have an institution like that that we do not consider pathological, except in the now very thinly spread tradition of the muse, that artists alone among human beings are given permission to talk in terms of my inspiration or a voice which told me to do this or uh, a vision that must be realized. The, the, thin sh- the thin line, the thin thread of shamanic descent into our profane world leads through the office of the artist. And so, if society is to somehow take hold of itself at this penultimate moment as we literally waver on the brink of planetary extinction, then the artist, like Ariadne following her thread out of the labyrinth, is going to have to follow this shamanic thread back through time. And you know, one of the most disempowering things that has been done to us by the male dominant culture is to um, brush out our footprints into the past. We don't have a clue as to how we got here. Most people can't think further back than the first Nixon administration, (laughs) let alone, you know, uh, the arrival of the Vikings, the fall of Chetalhuyuk, the melting of the glaciers, so forth and so on. We have been disempowered by a rational tendency to deny our irrational roots, which are a kind of embarrassment to science because science is uh, the special province of the ego and magic and art are the special province of something else. I could name it, but I won't. It prefers to be unnamed, I think. So how seriously then are we to take this, um, I'll call it an obligation, to follow the shamanic thread back into time. Ah, yes. And how seriously are we to take the challenge of turning this year into a magical work of art? For now, 
This is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.